You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Stand as you are and turn to page 941 in the chairback Bibles in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to take one of those as a gift from us to you. There's no greater gift we could give you than the living word of the Lord. We'll be beginning in chapter 2, verse 5, reading through 18. <clears throat> Here, friends, the living word of the Lord. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Friends, this is the word of the Lord, and it is true. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for today. We thank you for the gift of your living word. We thank you for the opportunity to sit under the teaching of the word today. God, would you soften our hearts? Spirit, would you work to transform us? Would we behold your glory, feel the nearness of your holy presence? And would our hearts be receptive to what you have to teach us? Pray that you'd be with Jordan, fill him with the spirit, and allow him to speak with boldness. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Creek. Sorry, I'm a little weird. I put my podium off to the side here, because if it's in front of me, I promise I will not look up from it the entire time. Well, a little bit about me. Most of you guys know I'm a Timothy Track intern here. Moved up here six months ago. Been here since August. It has been such a blessing to be with you guys, to serve in the Buddies program and wherever else you guys need me. I have loved connecting with so many of you. But I bet most of you have no idea who I am. So I was born and raised in Southern California, spent most of my life there. I uh, was, grew up in kind of a semi-religious household, claimed the name of God, but didn't really live it out fully. I then started going to church with a buddy who invited me, and in my mind, I was a pretty good person, 
But hey, if I get some more Jesus in me, that'll push me to the next level. Then I'll get even closer to God, right? You've probably all been there with me. <laughs> and so one of the amazing things that happened at this church was I heard the gospel over and over and over again. And by the grace of God, I was transformed and saved. A couple years later, God called me to go to college in a small town in the middle of the cornfields of Ohio, and I spent a couple years there, and I got introduced to a friend out there called Winter for the first time. <laughs> and I learned very quickly, I do not like this person named Winter. So I fled as fast as I could. I tried to go to Florida. I couldn't. So I got a job back in Southern California. And I got connected back with that same church I got saved at. And it was such a blessing because I spent five years there just soaking up the Word of God, falling in love with the Scriptures, understanding how to apply the Bible to my life. It was just such a blessing. I started to feel the call of ministry while I was there. I really felt like, man, maybe I should do this pastoral ministry thing. And after several years of being there, a door opened up for me to join the church plant team going to Texas. And most of you are probably thinking, why did people go from California to Texas? Texas is the Bible belt of the U.S. That's what I thought. That's what the whole team thought. We thought we we're going to be like one of a thousand good churches in the area. We went there and visited so many of them. So many were prosperity gospel preachers. So many were just watered down, not really preaching the Bible. We actually had hundreds of local Texans come to our church within the first two years because they were like, finally, a church in our area preaching the Bible. It was such a blessing being there. I uh, took a huge step of faith to go out there to leave all my friends and family behind. When God was calling me, I was wrestling in my mind, God, are you sure this is what you want me to do? God, I'm going to leave everything behind, my family, my friends, the 75-degree summers, and go to Texas where there's bugs and it's 120. Are you sure, God, this is what you want from me? And I had to wrestle with the Lord, but I ended up having to trust him. And empowered by the Spirit, I was able to trust him and go. And then the same thing happened in Texas. When I was there, I met some of the best friends I'll probably ever have in my life. Had an awesome church similar to this one. And I have some amazing godly friends there and family. My family moved out there too to be with me, which is ironic because I'm here now. And God called me to come out here. And I was like, God, are you sure? God, my family's here. My parents, my grandmother, they're all here. My sister's moving out soon. My friends are here. I have a great serving post. I love running the youth ministry. Why in the world are you calling me to leave? And again, I had to wrestle with God in prayer. God, is this really what you're calling me to do? And God just kept bringing to mind, you can trust me. You can trust me. I'm going to do good things through this. And thankfully, I've been here for several months, and I've grown dramatically being at Mill Creek in Midwestern. One of the big things I've learned here is this idea of gospel centrality, something most of you are probably very familiar with. It was a newer concept to me. I don't know how I missed it in my Christian walk before I got here, but I knew the gospel saved me. I knew it has the power to save unbelievers, but I didn't understand it's the power that empowers me to do everything in the Christian life. Before I got here, I had this missing puzzle piece in my spiritual walk, this missing link in a fence, and I didn't know what it was. I felt burnt out. I felt like, man, I'm still wrestling with stuff I shouldn't be wrestling with. What is going on? And I came here and heard this idea of gospel centrality and said, all right, that's it. That's the missing puzzle piece. 
I'm doing everything not to please God, but he's already pleased with me because of Christ, and now I do it as an overflow of love to him. I'm not doing this by my strength anymore. I'm doing this by the strength that Jesus supplies me by the Holy Spirit. And maybe some of you are like me. You're feeling a little wary. You're feeling a little burnt out. You're feeling like, man, what is going on? Why can't I overcome this sin that I desperately want to? And you're thinking to yourself, where is this missing puzzle piece at? Well, today's message is going to be crucial for us to uh, really hear from the Word today because if we can grasp it, I'm hoping to give you this missing puzzle piece. I'm not promising some sort of magic pill that's going to fix your spiritual walk completely, but I'm hoping to set you on the right path and right trajectory. If you wandered off from this gospel central path here, I'm hoping to bring you back along and renew your strength and give you the right motivation to praise God and worship him with your whole heart by the blood of Jesus and through the power of the Spirit. So I'm going to give you my sermon in a sentence up front. It's King Jesus came to die and it matters. So if you've been at Mill Creek for a little while and you're like, oh man, another gospel-centered message. Yes, I'm sorry. And not sorry because the gospel is amazing and I hope it overwhelms you. But I've been assigned a passage that is one of the most gospel-centered messages a person could preach. So again, sermon in a sentence, King Jesus came to die and it matters. So we're going to be looking through this passage in three different sections. The first one is what we'll dive into, verses 5 through 8. And this is point one. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. So we have to put on the sandals of the original audience of the first century here. They thought very differently than you and I thought. We understand this fact that, yeah, God is in control. God is the one ruling. In their minds... That was kind of true, but they were familiar with the Old Testament. And in parts of the Old Testament, it implies that angels played a part in some sort of ruling of this world you and I lived in. They were given some sort of dominion over countries and nations and people. And so they thought, okay, angels are in control. So then how is Christ in control? Not only that, the angels are above humans. So on the scale of beings, angels here, humans here. And so they're like, Jesus became a human, which is lower than an angel. So how in the world is Jesus superior to angels? I don't, I don't get what's going on here. And so he says this to him. He says, before I dive into that, he says, actually, guys, if you know your Old Testaments well enough, you'll know the Messiah who God is sending to save people from, his sin, from their sins is going to be a man. This is because only a man can pay for the sins of mankind. An angel cannot do that. They just cannot do it. A man has to do it. That's why the Old Testament uh, prophesies about the Messiah, calling him son of David, son of man, offspring of Abraham. He even throws in this Psalm 8 reference here in Hebrews 2, verses 6 through 8. Let's read this together. This is a quote from Psalm 8. It has been testified somewhere, Psalm 8, what is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Right here, the author is proving 
Guys, the Old Testament doesn't show that Jesus is not God or in control. The Old Testament is saying Jesus is superior to angels because he became a man, and now he's given this right to rule and reign over everything. So he's telling them, no, no, no. The angels are not up here and reigning. Jesus is up here because he's the Old Testament Messiah that's been prophesied about for ages to come. So the audience is thinking, okay, I get it. Jesus is the Messiah. He was supposed to be human. He was supposed to be made a little while lower than the angels. I get it. You've proved to me Jesus is superior. But is he truly king? Is he truly reigning in the heavens right here, right now? Like many of us, they had some hard challenges in their lives. In the first century, they weren't in America where we get to gather here today and just have a you know, worship session they faced persecution from their Jewish brethren. The Roman Empire was persecuting them. They had all these false teachers creeping in their church trying to destroy it from the inside out. And they're thinking through all this, Jesus is in control? Are you sure? Do you see everything we're going through? And so he knows this, the author, and he says this in Verse 8 again. Let's keep reading here in verse 8 of chapter 2 of Hebrews. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. What? You just said nothing was left out of his control. And now you're saying not everything's in his control quite yet. Those are contradictory statements. They don't make sense. They don't go together. What are you saying here, author? And so men much smarter than me, scholars, theologians, call this the already and the not yet. Jesus' reign has already been inaugurated. His reign is real and true, and he's in complete control, yet not everything he wants to implement has been implemented fully. He will completely implement it all. One day when he comes back a second time and establishes his reign, destroys sin forever, and remakes this universe. The already, the not yet. Let me ask you a few questions here to kind of crystallize this idea. And feel free to respond. I'd love to hear your response to this. Are people getting saved at Mill Creek? Being baptized? Yes, they are. Are disciples being made and growing in their faith? Yes. Are churches planting churches? Yes. But let me ask you this. Well, the reason why is because Christ reigns. He's in control. He's sovereign. He's ruling right now. But let me ask you this. Does everybody you know in Shawnee in the Kansas area bow their knee to Christ right now? No. Does sin still run rampant in the United States? Yes. Does every person you know worship Jesus on Sundays and throughout the rest of the week? No. Is there persecution still going on around the globe to our brothers and sisters in Christ? Yes. Because he's already in control, but he has not yet implemented everything he wants to implement. Think about a CEO. When a CEO takes over a company, he's in complete control. It is all under his authority. He is the head honcho but he doesn't implement everything right away. He slowly implements it over time, and there will come a point in time where everything he wants to implement is implemented. That's like Jesus. 
He's in complete control, and he's slowly implementing these changes, and one day he'll fully implement everything in the new heavens and the new earths. So application point here, trust that Christ reigns. Trust that Christ reigns. I know it's tempting to be like the Hebrews and think to ourselves, man, I have so many hard things going on in my life right now. Has God forgotten about me? I've been there so many times where I've gone through a sickness or car accident or something in life, a family member dies. And it's been like, man, God, are you truly there? And I'm sure some of you are wrestling with this. God, are you really with me through this? It is much harder to parent my, younger, my young children than I thought. Are you with me in this? Maybe some of you have adult children that have totally walked away from the faith. And you're like, God, where are you in this? Maybe some of you are struggling with unemployment, trying to find a job just to provide for yourself and your family. God, where are you in this? Now I want to encourage you that no matter what our emotions say to us, no matter our feelings want us to believe, Christ reigns and he is in complete control of the situation. He is not some distant God. He sees it and he's using it for a purpose. Think about Romans 8.28. We have that on the screen here. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. This verse is showing that Jesus is so sovereign, he's so in control, he's somehow able to use every single situation, hard, challenging, frustrating, and use it for our good and his glory, here and now and in eternity. That is a glorious, glorious promise. So trust that he reigns. Now the original audience would be thinking, okay, I get that he reigns, but why did he have to die? And that's going to be point two here for verses 9 through 13. Why did he die? Why did he die? And again, we live in 21st century America where we hear all the time, yeah, Jesus died. That's what Good Friday is about. We know that. It's the air we breathe. It's the water we swim in. In the first century, this was novel and new. No God died. Think about the Roman and Greek gods and goddesses. Zeus ain't dying. Poseidon ain't dying. Ares, the god of war, wants to kill you to establish his dominance. In addition, these Jews, they knew that angels didn't die. These immortal spiritual beings. So again, in their mind, Jesus became a man and died, and angels don't die. Wait, how is he superior to angels? You see where they were just kind of twisted up in their thinking. They just didn't get it. They didn't grasp it. And so he says this to him. Let's look in verse 9 here. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You see what the author is saying? He's saying Jesus isn't great despite his death. He's saying Jesus is great because of his death. It's said there, he's been crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering of death. So God had this plan to save the world from its sins. And he said, son, Jesus, I want you to go down there, live a perfect life, die on the cross for humanity's sins. I want you to taste death for everyone. Take the death, the wrath, the punishment they all deserve. 
He goes and obeys every one of his commands perfectly, and then he dies on the cross. And because of this, because of his obedience, God has exalted him to ruler of the universe. So he's saying Jesus' greatest weakness, his death, which was weak in first century Middle East, is actually what has made Jesus great. Not only has it exalted him, but there's a couple amazing benefits you and I experience from his death. Let's look at verses 10 through 13 here of Hebrews 2. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I'll sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. So the first benefit here, he's brought many sons to glory through his death. This means that this eternal weight of glory that God is preparing, we get access to. And we don't deserve it, right? It is 100% by the grace of God through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who deserves eternal glory, but he's the one who tasted our death and gives us this glory. You and I get to live forever and ever in the presence of God in a perfect paradise because of Jesus' death. Not only that, you notice the children and brothers references a lot. What this text is saying is that because Jesus died, we are brought in to God's family. It's not this weird, strange, okay, I forgive you, but stay over there. It's this, you are my son now. Jesus can call us brothers. The perfect son of God was treated like an outcast on the cross, so all of us outcasts can be treated the way the perfect, the son of God does. That's what Jesus' death has given us. So again, his greatest weakness is actually his greatest strength. One of my favorite basketball players is this guy named Anthony Davis. He's almost seven feet tall, but he can dribble and pass and shoot like a small point guard. And the reason he's so good is because he's this big man who can do all these small guy things. And he got like this because of a supposed weakness. He grew up very normal height, very average guy. He got this massive stature his senior year of high school. So his whole life he grew up dribbling and passing and running plays. And when he got this massive frame, he went from a guy with only one scholarship offer to the number one prospect in the country. And so Anthony Davis's greatest weakness has actually served to be his greatest strength. That's what the author is saying about Jesus. His greatest weakness in the first century was that he died. Nobody got it. It was folly and shame. And right here, the author of the Hebrews is saying, no, no, no. Jesus' death is his greatest strength. Because of it, God has exalted him. Because of it, we're brought to glory. Because of it, we're named sons and daughters of the true and living God. Praise be to God. So application point here, don't let the good news become old news. Don't let the good news become old news. 
I know there's a temptation in all of us to think to ourselves, man, I've heard the gospel a million times. And it's probably true. You probably have heard it a million times. But that's because it's such a beautiful thing. It's amazing news. The fact is, it's not that we've heard it so much that we're becoming numb to it. The fact is we don't understand the depth of it. And what I mean by this is, many of us in here, similar to how I was and still struggle with, oh, I was a pretty good person before I became a Christian. Jesus just pushed me over the line into God's family. You know, Jesus is that bonus point. I was so close to an A, and Jesus gave me that A. Right? Most of us probably think that way in some way or another. Well, that's not what the Bible says about you and me. We have Ephesians 2, 1 on the screen here. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. The Bible says I was dead. The Bible says you were dead before Christ. So before Christ, or excuse me, Christ didn't make good men and women better. Christ made dead men and women alive. That is the beauty of the gospel. It should overwhelm us. And at this point, if you're not a believer in here, if you stumbled in here and just found a church on a Sunday, or you've been coming for a few weeks, some friends inviting you, maybe you're a younger person here, maybe still trusting in the faith of your parents. I did youth ministry for years, so I know. I want to encourage you today. You need to take the step of faith yourself. You can't look at Jesus and see what he's done for you and not do anything with that. You can't do that. You have to respond to this. You have to be willing to turn from your sins, turn from your lifestyle, turn from trusting in your good works, turn from trusting in your parents' faith, whatever it is, and trust in Jesus alone for salvation. So I'd encourage you today to do that if you have not. Now some of you in here are thinking, okay, great, I get it. The gospel is awesome. But you said you were going to help me practically in day-to-day -day life. When do we get into that? Well, we're going to do that right now. This is point three for verses 14 to 18. Why does it matter? Why does it matter? Why does all this stuff about the gospel, about Jesus, matter for us? Once you're done writing, let's read together. Hebrews 2, verse 14. I'll give you three quick reasons based on these verses here. Hebrews 2.14 says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, right? Jesus became a man just like us, that's what it said, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So right here, the first reason why this matters for us is it has destroyed the devil's grip on us. 1 John 3.10 says that all people who are not saved are children of the devil. What that means is there's some sort of grip and power and influence the devil has on a non-Christian he no longer has as a Christian. And we know that's bad news when you're not a Christian because Jesus says in John 8.44, the devil is a murderer, the devil is a father of lies. He wants to deceive you. Think about Job. What did the devil do to Job. He killed his family, his livestock, took all his money, killed his servants, gave Job boils and blisters. The only reason he didn't kill Job was because God would not let him. So this evil being has some sort of power over us, and us being in Christ now frees us from that. 
We're no longer in this kingdom of darkness, tormented by Satan, but we're in this kingdom of light under the presence and protection of a perfectly heavenly Father. Reason two, let's look at verse 15. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This verse is saying that Christ has freed us from the fear of death. If you're not a Christian here, if you know any Christian out there, they all fear death. Every non-Christian fears death. Religious people do. Really sinful criminals do. Everybody does. There's a documentary Disney released recently trying to help a famous actor heal himself emotionally and physically. And in one of the episodes, they address his fear of death. He's had it ever since he was a kid. He still has it, even though he's mid-30s, prime of his life, millionaire, world famous, still has a fear of death. And Disney finds all these medical professionals who are experts in this field, done years of research and application, spends millions of dollars for this, and these are the two pieces of advice they give him. Just accept you're going to die and live it up now. I'm not kidding. That's exactly what they told him. Accept you're going to die and live it up now. So Jesus has done what Disney and its millions of dollars could not do, what these medical experts and years of research could not do. He has given us the solution to the fear of death. What a beautiful thing. Even though we still die, we will rise to a better life. We as Christians know that death is no longer a period that ends our story. It's a comma that starts the rest of our story. And eternity, Paul says, is so much greater and so much more magnificent than this life. It is going to be far more we can ever imagine. So believers like you and me are no longer afraid to die. Praise be to God. Last reason here is in verse 18. Verses 16 and 17 reemphasize Jesus' incarnation and death. And verse 18 says this, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Again, this was a novel idea in the first century. What do you mean a God who can relate with my struggles, my trials, my hardships, and wants to help me through them? Think about the Roman and Greek gods. They just partied it up all the time on Mount Olympus. And their worshipers, to get their attention, would have to sacrifice, do crazy festivals, just to hope the gods would look at them and pay them mind. Think about a common religion in our day, Islam. Allah is this holy, transcendent God that can't even have a relationship with his people. He's so far removed from him. There's a man that converted to Islam overseas, and he said, for my 20 years of being a Muslim since I was born, I was never once told Allah loved me. And now I know that Jesus loves me. So the question these, any person worshiping a God, the two questions they'll ask is, does this God care and will they help me? And that's the question we should all be asking. Does Jesus care and will he help me? And these verses are saying an emphatic yes. He cares not only because he sees you, but because he's experienced it. That's one of the reasons he became a man. So he could be tempted. God can't be tempted by sin. So Jesus became a man to experience what we experience. What a kind God that is. 
He said, I'm going to put off eternal glory and put on this human flesh, never losing his deity, and I'm going to be tested with everything they're tested with, experience everything they experience, but I'm going to overcome all of it so I can give them my power to overcome it themselves. What a glorious God we serve. Application point here. Run to Jesus when it gets difficult. Run to Jesus when it gets difficult. If you're like me, when I'm struggling with sin or temptation, I want to do the exact opposite. I want to hide and run from God, kind of like Adam did in the garden. Ah, man, God must be mad at me right now. He's probably so angry with me. How can he look at me? Man, Jesus must be so disappointed. And that's not what the Bible says. Let me read Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 for you. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So God's not sitting there on a throne judging us. Jesus himself is sitting up there on his throne of grace and power and mercy saying, come to me. I know what you're going through. I've experienced it. I can help you. I have all the power, the grace and mercy. You need to get through this and overcome this. He's saying, I know. Please come to me. So I want to encourage you guys, run to Jesus when you're tempted or struggling. He wants to and is able to help you. So we've addressed that Jesus is king, he died, and that it matters. It matters because he's in control so we can trust him with our lives. It matters because we're no longer children of the devil, but children of God. It matters because he knows what we've experienced and he can help us through it. He knows. So all this matters to us. And I know this is such a difficult sermon to apply to our lives because it's not do this or do that. Hey, read your Bible more, quit you know, swearing or whatever you're doing. That's not what it's saying. It's, it's encouraging us to think differently. And that's hard to live out. It's so hard. It's something I've been struggling to do but have been having more success in the last several months of being here. When I've put on that gospel-centered mindset no longer is it, all right, I'm going to do this, go to church and read my Bible so God is cool with me today. I don't want to make him mad. No, 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 no. I'm going to go to church and read my Bible today because of Jesus and his sacrifice. God is pleased with me. He looks at me and you just like he looked at Christ and said, that's my beloved son. That's my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. So it's this mindset shift, this motivational change Instead of doing things to earn God's favor, it's knowing you have God's favor and doing things from that. So I hope this encourages you and challenges you today to do so, to live for God, to see the power he's given you, to overcome sin by a right motivation. The missing link, hopefully, in your fence is this. The missing puzzle piece is hopefully this, that the gospel is what gives us the power and the motivation to overcome sin and live for the glory of God because Jesus Christ cares for us and he can help us. Let's pray. Father, we are so blessed by your word today. What an amazing God you are. 
You are filled with grace and mercy and power. You're filled with love and joy. God, you're not like the Roman and Greek gods and goddesses who don't really care about your people. You're not like Allah who's just often distant and holier than thou. You are the Savior who humbled himself, became a man, died for our sins, given us eternal glory, made us sons of God, and are willing to help us in our struggles right here and right now. God, I pray we would internalize this message. Pray that we would see that you are our motivation and you are our strength, God. In your son's name, amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.